a lot of verses that we could go into more depth on, I'm sure, but it's kind of a section, a segment that deserves being covered by itself. So we're in verses 6 through 13. There's an outline on the back of, or inside your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits, and you can pick those up. And there are um, uh, audio messages online as well you can access. John says, There came a man sent from God, whose name was John, referring to John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him, that is, through John, his witness. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, the evening news recently has been carrying a couple of uh, courtroom dramas that have captured attention not only locally but around the world. The first one, as you probably know, in Phoenix is the story of a young woman who uh, killed her lover and claims that she acted in self-defense. The other is the uh, story of the so-called Olympic Blade Runner in South Africa who shot his glamorous girlfriend and yet uh, claims that he thought she was an intruder into his apartment. Now, in both of those stories, it's very difficult to get to the bottom line, to the real truth, because there were no eyewitnesses of the killing. And so... You're going on the word of those who uh, are allegedly the killers. And the defense will probably bring in witnesses to try to uh, testify to the good character of the accused. And the prosecution, of course, will bring in witnesses to undermine their character, to find contradictions in their story, and so on. But without credible eyewitnesses, it's really difficult to figure out exactly what happened, the truth. Now, what if in the case, we knew that one witness actually was sent to the witness stand by God and that even his coming was prophesied hundreds of years before he arrived on the scene and the second witness to appear on the stand who is one of the accused Uh, He shines with a light that is brighter and purer than anyone who has ever lived. Well, with these two exceptional and truthful witnesses, it shouldn't be very hard to decide the truth. And yet, when you get into the jury room, you are stunned to find some of the jurors who reject these credible, truthful witnesses. 
I only served on one jury in my life, and uh, it was a drunk driving case, and it was a slam dunk. I mean, the girl had twice the blood alcohol level. And I thought, oh, this is easy. We got into the jury room, and I couldn't believe that some of the jurors would not convict her of being twice over the limit. I mean, the proof was there. And yet, they just said, one guy said, oh, I can handle that much alcohol and drive. That's not the point. (laughs) The point is, did she drive over the limit or didn't she, you know? But deciding the truth. Well, the scene that John paints for us in our text is one of two witnesses who are extremely credible witnesses. Um, He's already given us in verses 1 through 5 a description of Jesus Christ, the eternal word, the second member of the Trinity, the creator of all that is, and he has said that Jesus is life, in him is life, and that the life that is in Jesus is the light of men, and that that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness at the same time did not either comprehend it or overcome it, overpower it, depending on how you take that Greek word. But in verse 5, John anticipates the conflict that is going to unfold in this drama as the Gospel of John continues, because in chapters 1 through 4, as the light shines, there is initial response, initial belief in the light. But then a corner turns in chapter 5 down through chapter 12, and you see mounting opposition to the witness of the light, and it leads up eventually to Jesus' mock trial and crucifixion. Now, in our text, John the Apostle introduces the witness of John the Baptist, whom he always just calls John, in verses 6 through 8. And then in verse 9, he introduces the witness of Jesus himself, whom he calls the true light, uh, which coming into the world enlightens every man. So there is more than adequate testimony in Jesus' favor for people to believe in him. But what will the jury decide? And while, as I said, this plays out throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, here John shows that while... um, They should have decided favorably, yet, sadly, there were many witnesses who rejected him. Those in the world who rejected him, and even those among his own people who should have received him, but they did not. But John, I think, is not just reporting a courtroom drama for your entertainment. John wants you to be on the jury, and he wants you to come to a verdict about the person of Jesus. That's what he's driving at. He wants to get your personal verdict on his witness, the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of Jesus himself, to Jesus Christ. And so John is making the point here that God's witness to his Son, who is the true light, demands your verdict of faith in him. So our text falls into two parts. In verses 6 through 9, John shows that God has given adequate witness to his son, Jesus. And then in verses 10 through 13, he shows that God's witness to his son demands a verdict of faith in him. But in spite of the solid witness that God has given, sadly, many of those who should have decided in his favor do not. 
know him. But he says, those who did are born of God. They become his children. So first, let's look at the adequate witness. God has given adequate witness to his son in verses 6 through 9. Now, the point of witnesses in any courtroom is to establish the truth beyond any reasonable uh, doubt. And as I pointed out in our first study, the overview of John, he marshals at least seven witnesses to Jesus Christ in the book. There is the Father, there is Christ himself, there is the Holy Spirit. So there's the threefold witness of the Trinity to Jesus. Then fourthly, there are Jesus' works, there are the scriptures, there's John the Baptist, and then a variety of human witnesses such as the disciples, the Samaritan woman, and the multitude. So in our text, we are looking at two of those witnesses, John the Baptist, and then the witness of Jesus Christ uh, to himself. First of all, in verses 6 through 8, John shows that God sent John the Baptist to witness to the light so that all might believe through him. Let's read verses 6 through 8 again. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify. It's the same word in Greek as witness, just the verb. To testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. John the Baptist is a unique man in all of history. He's the only man of whom it is ever said he was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was yet in his mother's womb. I can't imagine what that would be like. Did he go through the terrible twos? I don't know. Uh, I kind of doubt it. Um, I assume that that filling lasted. But his own birth was miraculous because... um, His parents were unable to conceive, and they were beyond the place where in life you were able to conceive, and yet God miraculously allowed them to conceive John. And John came in fulfillment of two Old Testament prophecies. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, we read, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And the picture behind that was when a king would come to visit, they would get out the highway crew and they would uh, fill all the potholes and they would make the way smooth so that the king had a, an easy route into the city. And then the other verse in Malachi 3 in verse 1 says, God is speaking, Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Now, John's purpose was clear, as we read in verse 7. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him, that is, through John. And then verse 8 doesn't add much new, but it clarifies that John himself was not that light, but uh, he came to testify about it. Um, It may be that John the Apostle added verse 8. Remember, he's writing in Ephesus, probably around the late 80s, 90 AD. And you'll remember that when Paul came to Ephesus, he found a pocket of men who believed in the baptism of John, but they had not yet heard and believed in Jesus. And so 
in Acts 19, we read about how he evangelized them and baptized them into the faith. Um, So it may be that there was still a group like that there. We don't know. Or maybe John the Apostle is just trying to clarify so that nobody misunderstands and follows uh, John the Baptist rather than Jesus. Um, C.H. Dodd pointed out that the three points that we read of there in verses 6 through 8 outline the development of the rest of chapter 1. First of all, John the Baptist is not the light, and that is developed for us in verses 19 through 28. Um, Then secondly, John was sent to bear witness to the light, and we read of John's witness to the light in verses 29 through 34. And thirdly, John's reason for coming was so that all might believe through him And in verses 35 down through 51, we read of how his disciples, through his witness, began to believe in Jesus Christ. And those three points are good to keep in mind whenever you have opportunity to bear witness. The first thing to remember is, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. And while it's fine to share your testimony, make sure that you direct people to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to your experience. And then secondly, just tell people who Jesus is. Bear witness of Christ. Because the key question, as I've pointed out, is who do you say Jesus is? It's when we see who he is that then we come to faith in him. And uh, John here testifies about Jesus. Just to kind of give you a preview of coming events... In verse 23, John testifies that Jesus is the Lord. In verse 27, John testifies that he himself is not worthy to untie the thong of Jesus' sandal. In verse 29, he testifies, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, Then, in verse 30, he says that Jesus was of higher rank than he, John, because he existed before John, even though As we know, John was older than Jesus. Then, in verse 32, he testified that he saw the Spirit of God descending on Jesus as a dove out of heaven. In verse 34, John said, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And then in verse 30 of chapter 3, John gave this great verse, He must increase but I must decrease. And so the point is, when you bear witness, tell people who Jesus Christ really is. Show them in the scripture who he is. And then the third point is, seek to bring people to faith in Jesus. In other words, don't just have a nice religious discussion and leave it at that, but press for a decision. You have to rely on the spirit there. You don't want to push people. And yet at the same time, you don't want people to think, oh, that's a nice topic, and yeah, I'll give that some thought, and then they're struck by a bus the next day, and that's it. They're in eternity. You want them to realize, this is urgent. You must believe in Jesus while you can, because none of us is guaranteed of tomorrow. So encourage people to trust in Christ for salvation. The second thing we see then in this um, witness of John Verse 9 is, as the true light, 
um, or, or I should say, moving on from the witness of John, as the true light, Jesus himself witnesses to who he is. Verse 9 again. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And true here means genuine as opposed to counterfeit. Um, D.A. Carson explains it this way. He says, John's point is that the word who came into the world is the light, the true light, the genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God to man. Now, there are a couple of interpretive issues, however, in verse 9 that we need to kind of work through. First of all, some of you may have a version that, um, a a translation that um, puts coming into the world, modifying man. The New King James Version says, that was the true light which gives light to every man who comes into the world. Uh, Other versions, most of the other modern versions, the NASB, the ESV, um, the Christian Standard Bible, the New International Version, have it translated so that uh, the true light coming into the world enlightens every man. Grammatically, in Greek, it can refer to either, so it's ambiguous, but contextually, I think, the order is in favor of the New American Standard translation or the English Standard version uh, because wherever in the uh, Gospel of John you have the phrase coming into the world or sent from the Father and so on, it refers to Jesus. And uh, in the very following verses, uh, verse 10, he was in the world. Verse 11, he came to his own. And so I believe that the correct translation then is that Jesus the light comes into the world and when he does, he enlightens every man. Now, that's the second interpretive issue to work through. What does it mean that he enlightens every man? And uh, I sorted out at least six different views out of commentaries. Um, First of all, some argue that it refers to the light of general revelation, the light that we see in nature that reveals the attributes and power of God. Or in John Calvin's case, he takes it to refer to the light of conscience that is in every heart, as Romans chapter 2 talks about. A second view is the view of the Quakers. They say that there is an inner light in every person. It's a mystical kind of thing. Um, Thirdly, some, and this was the view of Augustine, say that every man is restricted here and refers to all who are born again. A fourth view is others say, well, it means that Jesus would give uh, the light of truth to all whom his ministry would affect, whether in a greater degree some believed or perhaps to a lesser degree those who saw the light and turned away from it. A fifth view, excuse me, that's very popular is the Wesleyan view, and that is uh, that God gives what is called prevenient grace to all people. And by prevenient grace, they mean God has given all people the ability to believe in Jesus Christ, to choose to trust in him or not. The problem with that view is that it contradicts many verses that say that fallen man is incapable and it uses not able 
and I don't have time to go to them, but I listed them in the uh, notes. But many verses say man is unable to choose God in their fallen condition. So, what is the right view? That's where we're coming. Um, I think the best view is the view that this this refers to the exposure that light brings when it shines on something. Um, Whenever light... Excuse me. Whenever light comes, it sheds light on something. That's what it does. It makes something visible. And so it's not referring to an inner illumination, but rather to the objective revelation that when Jesus came into the world, he shined the light, the truth of God on this world. Uh, D.A. Carson explains it this way. It shines on every man and divides the race. Those who hate the light respond as the world does. Verse 10, they flee lest their deeds should be exposed by the light, as Jesus mentions in chapter 3. But some, he says, receive this revelation, verses 12 and 13, and thereby testify that their deeds have been done through God, as Jesus mentions again in chapter 3. Carson says in John's gospel, it is repeatedly the case that the light shines on all and forces a distinction. And so John's point is, when the light comes, it demands a response. Either like a bunch of cockroaches, people run for the dark. When the light is flipped on, they, they don't want their deeds exposed. And so they say, shut the light off, I don't want it. Or they realize this is the true light, and I need that. And it's a purifying light. And so they welcome the light, knowing that it's for their healing and good. And John then, (coughs) excuse me, it's allergy season. Uh, John then goes on in verses 10 through 13, and he shows these opposite responses. Um, He shows in those verses that the witness that God has given uh, concerning his son demands a verdict. First, he shows the wrong verdict in verses 10 and 11, and that is some reject uh, God's witness concerning the true light, verses 10 and 11 again. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Those verses show the tragedy of sin, and they show the terrible wickedness of the human heart. Think about it. Sin is always utterly irrational. I mean, it is not logical. Because here we have a God who loves sinners enough to send his own son from heaven to bear the penalty that they deserve so that they will not spend eternity in conscious torment and punishment. And he offers the gift of eternal life, not as a reward for if you'll sign up for the program and work hard all of your life and, and really, really suffer, then I'll give it to you. No, he offers it as a free gift. And they go, nah, nah, no thanks. I prefer my sin. I prefer, you know, eternal judgment to that gift. That is completely irrational. And yet, 
That's what John reports, verse 10. He was in the world. And the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. Now, as I said in the introductory message, that word world is one of John's themes. He's going to use it 78 times in this gospel. And often he refers to the world system, the evil world system that is organized under the ruler of this world, Satan, opposed to God and opposed to the people of God. Uh, John, I think, heightens the irony here by that little phrase, the world was made through him. He's already said that up in verse 3. But he adds it here just to show this is a no-brainer, folks. Here the maker of the world comes to the very world he made, and the people in the world go, nah, we don't want him. They don't know him. And knowing Jesus or not knowing him is another major theme in John. Um, In chapter 4, verse 42, remember chapter 4 is the interview with the Samaritan woman at the well? And she goes back into the city and tells the men of the city, come see a man who told me everything that I've ever done. And they flock out and, and then here's what they say, verse 42. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, notice, and we know, we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So there you have the word know and the word world again. This is the Savior of the world, they say. And then in chapter 6, verse 69, after many of the disciples turn away from Jesus because of some hard things that he says, Peter testifies, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. But then you get to chapter 8 as the opposition is mounting and Jesus says to the hostile Jews, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Now, why didn't the world know Jesus, its creator and savior? Well, one reason is the world is spiritually blind. We know that. Another reason is that Chapter 3, we'll learn the world loves its sin. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. I think in many cases, the world doesn't know Jesus just because they're indifferent. People are pursuing their own agenda. Jesus told that about the people invited to the feast. And the guy said, no, I just bought a new yoke ox and I need to go check them out. Yeah, I just married a wife. I need to go see how she's doing. And they make up all kinds of excuses for why they won't come to the feast that the king is prepared for them. Um, And so I think sometimes it's just, nah, I got my own agenda, thanks. And people are blind to the fact soon you will be in eternity and you need to know the, the maker, the creator. And then in verse 11, John heightens the irony of the world not knowing Jesus. I mean, you could say, well, the world's out there. Of course, they don't know Jesus. But verse 11, he came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. Now, we we can't get the flavor of that verse in English because we don't have gender attached to um, words. But in Greek, there's a word play. The first his own is neuter in Greek, and it refers to his own things, his own possessions, his own home. It's used that way in chapter 19. Uh, The second, own, 
his own is masculine. And it refers to um, his own people, the fellow Jews. Now, both phrases may refer to Israel because the uh, book of Psalms says that Israel belongs to the Lord as his inheritance. It's his own. But uh, whatever it's mentioning, it's heightening the irony and saying, here Jesus comes to that which really rightfully belongs to him. And in fact, they were his own kinsmen, and yet they rejected him. They should have recognized Jesus because they had the scriptures, the Old Testament that prophesied of him. Uh, But Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah they were looking for. They were looking for a political Messiah who could deliver them from Rome and give them peace and prosperity. Sounds familiar, huh? You know, that's the kind of leader we want. Just give me all the goodies. Give me peace. Give me prosperity. I'll vote for you. And uh, they didn't see their need for a savior from sin. And so they end up rejecting the true light who made them and rightfully owned them. Now, there are two applications for us, I think. First of all, John wants to make sure that you're not rejecting Jesus, the true light, and that you're not rejecting him because he's not the kind of savior you envisioned. It's not uncommon to see people who warmly embrace Jesus at first, and then difficulty comes up, and they turn away. I just this morning in my quiet time read the parable of the sower. And there's that seed on the rocky ground. It springs up quickly. Great joy, it embraces Jesus. Ah, but then the sun comes and it withers because there's no root in it. It it just wanted the goodies. It didn't really want to endure hardship. So make sure that just because Jesus didn't give you the quick relief you thought he would give you, that you don't turn from him. The issue is, is he who he claimed to be? The second application is don't be surprised when people you share the Lord with don't just warmly embrace him. Because, again, people still love darkness because their deeds are evil. But thankfully, John shows not all reject Jesus. Verses 12 and 13, others receive God's witness to Jesus by believing in his name. John 1.12, but as many as received him... To them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, those verses state the purpose for which John's gospel really was written, and so it forms what is called an inclusio. It's kind of like bookends. You got one at the start. And you got one at the end to wrap it up and make the point again. And we saw at the end, uh, these things I've written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ so that you might have life in his name. Well, here at the start, we have John's purpose again, that you might believe and receive him and receive life in his name. Also, these verses strike a balance, 12 and 13. In verse 12, you have human responsibility In verse 13, you have divine sovereignty, as I'll comment on in a moment. So first of all, verse 12, those who receive Christ and believe in his name become children of God. Now, what does it mean to receive Christ? Well, I think in the context, it's the very opposite of verses 10 and 11, rejecting Christ. 
not welcoming him. So to receive him means you swing open the door, you welcome him into your life as Savior and Lord, and it means the same thing, John says, even to those who believe in his name. Now, his name, of course, refers to all that Jesus is in his person and in his work. It means believing in his name, that you believe that Jesus came, that he died on the cross as a substitute for your penalty for sin. And it means that you then stop trusting in your own merit or your own good works as the basis for getting into heaven. Instead, you embrace Jesus totally so that when you stand before God, your only hope of heaven is Jesus died for my sins. And I trust in him. And uh, let me mention, when you share the gospel, one, one in five Americans is from a Roman Catholic background. So chances are, at some point, if you're sharing your faith, you're going to share with a person from a Catholic background. And what they will often say, if you say, have you ever received Christ? They'll say, oh, yes. And what they mean by that is, every week, I take communion at Mass, at the Mass, because they believe that that little piece of bread is the literal body of Christ, and when they take it, they are receiving Christ. And so they'll say, yes, of course, I receive Christ. And many times they will say, too, I believe in Christ. Now, often you'll sense, well, they do, but they don't get it. So how do you get around that with them? Um, I think you have to make it clear to them that trusting Christ, receiving Christ, means abandoning all trust in your own merit and in your own good works because that's the flaw of the Roman Catholic system of salvation. They believe in Christ as Savior, but they add, you must also add your good works. And so the question is, how many? When are you good enough? You know, even the last pope, when he died, the current pope who just resigned yesterday, um, he he asked the faithful to pray that pope into heaven, out of purgatory. Well, if the pope isn't good enough, who is? So you see, that system keeps people in bondage and in guilt and wondering, when do I have enough to tip the scale? And the answer is never, because you must be perfect you must have a substitute righteousness. So help them to understand what it means to be justified by faith alone and to see that you can take communion all your life and you can go to Mass every time it's offered and you can do penance all your life and it never will qualify you for heaven. It's only faith in Christ. Now John says, when we truly receive Christ or believe in him, He gives us the right or the authority, the Greek word is exousia, the the right or authority to become the children of God. And that word right, it refers to um, like maybe a birth certificate. Your birth certificate proves you were born to this man and this woman, and it is proof positive. And then John says that those who believe become children of God, and that implies they weren't such before. It's something they become. And that means all people are not God's children. 
I, <clears throat> I've talked to uh, liberal pastors who say, well, they're all God's children. No, they're not. Not until they believe in Jesus do they become the children of God. And it's not by natural birth, it's by spiritual uh, new birth. Have you ever daydreamed maybe what it would be like to be born into a wealthy family? Or uh, perhaps you were born into a family where there was not much love and to have a family that loves you. Well, you get all of that and more besides. You get spiritual riches for eternity and you get a family that loves you and more than that, you get a God who loves you like no family ever could when you trust in Jesus Christ and become a child of God. First John 3, 1 John 3.1, John exclaims, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. Here he is. He wrote First John late in life, and he's still marveling. He can't get over it. I'm a child of God. And he adds, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So what a wonderful privilege then to become a child of God through the new birth, born into the family of God where you got brothers and sisters all over the world who love you. And more than that, you have a father who loves you like no earthly father could. Then secondly, John says that those who believe in Jesus were born of God not from human power. And verse 13 is describing those in verse 12 who believe in Jesus' name. He says they were born, but he says it wasn't a natural birth. Uh, Blood is literally plural in Greek, but it refers to human ancestry. They were not born of human ancestry, The will of the flesh would point to the decision of parents to have a child. That's not the cause of this birth. Uh, The will of man would refer to human willpower. And I think John piles up these phrases and he puts this verse in here to counter the Jewish tendency toward racial pride. I'm a child of Abraham. That's enough. A physical descendant of Abraham, I'm good. And remember Jesus laid into them and John the Baptist on that and said, God can raise up stones uh, to be children of Abraham. You must repent and believe in Jesus. Ed Bloom explains verse 13 this way. He says, the birth of a child of God is not a natural birth. It is a supernatural work of God in regeneration. A person welcomes Jesus and responds in faith and obedience to him But the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit is the cause of regeneration. And just as we had nothing to do with our physical birth, I didn't pick my parents or choose to be born to them at the time in history I was born. Same with spiritual birth. I can't take credit for it. And I think that's the point of verse 13. I can't boast in my wise decision. I can't boast in my faith. All I can say is, God had mercy on me, the sinner. And so all glory goes to God. Now, verses 12 and 13 raise a a theological issue that comes up, and I'll just comment on it briefly here. And that is, do we first believe and then we get born again? Or are we born again and then believe? 
Well, um, they both happen, I might add, in a microsecond, a nanosecond, to use the modern term. So we're not talking about a chronological order where someone is born again and then five years later they believe. We're talking about a logical order, okay, or a theological order, if you will. Um, I think the clearest verse to answer the question is 1 John 5.1, and here's a literal translation of it. Whoever believes or is believing, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ has been in the past, perfect tense, with continuing results, has been born of God. In other words, believing, if you're believing in Christ, that's evidence God did something in your heart. He quickened you from the dead. That's why you're believing in Jesus Christ, because God gave you new life through the new birth. John Stott, the uh, late British pastor and commentator, comments on the verse and its verb tenses. He says, it shows clearly that believing is the consequence, not the cause of the new birth. Our present continuing activity of believing is the result and therefore the evidence of our past experience of the new birth by which we became and remain God's children. Now, let me be quick to add here, there is a mystery. You don't call on people to be born again. You call on people to believe. The Bible does. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Uh, In our text, as many as believe in his name. So, believe in Christ is your responsibility. Behind that belief, however, is an act of God. And so as you're appealing to someone, put your trust in Christ. I hope you're shooting up prayers to God saying, Oh God, quicken them from the dead. God, open their blind eyes that they would see the truth of the gospel. And so on one level, they believe, they make a profession of faith in Christ. But then as they come to understand it, they realize, guess what? I did that because God did something in my heart. God opened my heart, my eyes to the truth. God quickened me from the dead, and that instant he did, I believe. And so again, it's a matter of who gets the glory in salvation. I can't take credit saying I was a little smarter than that dumb neighbor of mine who doesn't believe because I chose Christ. No. If God had not first chosen me, if God had not quicken me from the dead, I'd be just like my neighbor, probably worse. I would be out living in the world, living for the things of the world, with no regard to Jesus in eternity. And so the fact that I believe means all the glory goes to God, none to me. I believe because God saved me. He quickened me. So it comes time for a verdict. You're on the jury. You've heard the witnesses. And now you're in a jury room all by yourself. What are you going to decide? Will you believe in Jesus as the only hope for heaven? Or will you say, ah, I'm busy. I got my job, got my family, got my hobbies. You know, maybe someday. 
No, you have to decide. Not to decide is to decide wrongly. And so John is pressing you, and I'm pressing you for a verdict. Will you decide, yes, today, this day, I will believe in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I will follow him. I will surrender all to him, as we sang earlier. And by God's grace, at that moment, you become a child of God. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see and our hearts to respond.